1: Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show on voiceamericavariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Leslie Tain. She's author of Life and Debt, A Fresh Approach to Achieving Financial Wellness. So when it comes to financial infidelity, Leslie Tain, Esquire, attorney, debt therapist, and author of Life and Debt has seen it all, and uh, she, borrowing from a 401K without a spouse's knowledge, spending too much money in secret, hiding packages in a car, lending money to your friends without telling a significant other. And as Tane says, when you get caught, and eventually it does catch up with you, financial infidelity becomes very destructive. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Leslie. Thank you so much for having me today. Well, when we're talking about life and debt, D-E-B-T, I have to say I think most people don't, not only do they not want to hear the word, we don't really like to talk about it. We don't like to talk about money. We don't talk like to talk about losing money. And particularly, I think most of us really don't like to talk about that in connection with our relationships or losing a relationship over money. So this is kind of like a taboo topic.
2: It, no doubt that it is. It's yeah. a topic that not everybody wants to talk about that it's an area of, of secrecy often and often an area of distrust. And that can start from when you're young, it, from your parents. It could uh, create, be created from other situations, but it's not a topic that everybody really wants to talk about. And it especially creates issues within relationships.
1: Okay, and you're specifically talking about, and we need to talk about it, we have to have the conversation. So in having the conversation, You discuss in your book financial wellness. That's what we're talking about. So we want to keep ourselves above board, achieve financial wellness, and in the process it helps not only us, but it helps our relationships with our significant other as well. So, okay, so where do we start when we're talking about life and debt, Uh, a fresh approach which implies a new approach to achieving financial wellness? Well, one of the starting points is
2: to really be
1: honest with yourself about
2: money, learning about yourself, your needs, your wants, desires, the way you spend, learning about your habits. I mean, we spend a lot of time learning about our eating habits. We spend a lot of time uh, learning about our sleeping habits and work habits. But we don't necessarily spend a lot of time learning about our money and financial habits. And that's something that should be a priority in our lives. And when you start to learn about yourself and how you spend and how you think about money, you'll be able to have a different kind of relationship with money. Perhaps you do like to spend impulsively because something is bothering you or that you don't like to share with your spouse how much money you make or how much money is really coming in or what the bills really are. And those things are important to know. Why is it that you do that? And when you can get to the bottom of some of those questions, you can create a different relationship with money and spending and budgeting and put yourself in a totally
1: different position. Well, it seems to me, and I don't have the statistics, you probably do, um, Leslie, but what about how... What are the statistics in terms of Americans being in debt? Because all I hear, I mean, generally speaking, or you read about it in the news or on the net, Americans are in debt, we spend too much on our credit cards, uh, we don't, ha- aren't saving money, particularly the baby boomers for later on in life, but you know, and we're not working. So we're not really in that good shape. Do we need to have statistics to kind of get a feel for what the background is in all of this? You know, my feeling on the statistics is that people see and hear numbers
2: all the time, but it's no different than looking at any other kind of number, and that's where the problems with budgeting comes in. It's a fear of the real numbers, and when people look at the the statistics, it's really not necessarily impactful on them because they either don't see themselves as part of the statistics or they don't really understand the meaning of the statistics that are being told. Statistics are used for the purposes of measuring things, but these days they're often used for sensationalization or even sometimes exaggeration or impacting a particular topic. But it doesn't necessarily impact people who have debt and financial issues because once you start to get into a situation where your money isn't being managed well, where you're not necessarily paying bills on time, where you don't have the savings accounts uh, that you want to have, that you don't have the financial fidelity in your relationship that you really ideally want. Those statistics are meaningless. People shut them off. So I think it's really important to not necessarily look at the globalization of the problem, but to take a look at yourself individually and take a look at the fact that you yourself want to create a different situation. You want to have money in the bank. You want to buy a particular house. You want to pay for your kids to go to school. You want to feel financially independent at any age, no matter what your gender is or your age. And to do that, you really have to look, again, at yourself. And by looking at the larger statistics, people just try to find ways to disassociate themselves with those statistics. Well, so many X amount of people are in debt. That's true. But almost everybody I meet has debt. I mean, there are people I do meet occasionally who are not. But most people have debt, and most people have to learn to manage it. Many of those most people have debt that is out of control, And you might be
1: one of those people. So it's something to take a look at on an individual basis. So get rid of the statistics. Take a look at yourself. If you're in denial, that's what you're saying. That's what's important. And so we'll go with the assumption that we're talking, each one of us is talking about our unique situation. So let's say we are in debt. Uh, and you in your book suggest creative ways to, uh, get out of debt. So let's start with there. We'll make the assumption that I'll make. We'll make the assumption that each one of us has a problem um, uh, with debt. And so, what do we do? So, what do you do well, if you? Yeah. It's not just a problem
2: with debt. It's debt is a part of our life. So, you have debt. I have debt. we have cars, we have houses, we have property taxes, we have income taxes. That is a form of debt. So recognizing that debt is a part of your life is also part of step number one. So you might have credit card bills that you pay off, and you might say to, you even might say to me listen leslie i don 't really have a debt problem. I might have five ten thousand dollars of balances, but I can pay that it 's not really a problem. You still have debt, so it still needs to be managed. And the question is, how is it managed effectively, and how does it impact your life? Having five or ten thousand dollars in credit card debt may not be a big deal to somebody who earns an income of a hundred thousand or one hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. But if you earn an income and you're around the income level of thirty, thirty-five thousand, you have a possible problem on your hands because your debt numbers are becoming your your percentages of what you owe versus what you make the balances on your cards versus what the available credit is, all of that is going to change depending on where your numbers fall. And that's why, again, it's so important to be aware of how the debt impacts your life. It's not necessarily a problem because I do have a lot of people who come see me and say to me, I have debt, I have $100,000 in debt, but it's not a problem. It is a problem if you if you tell me that there's no money in the bank and it is a problem if you tell me that you only make minimum payments and it is a problem if you tell me that I can't really afford to pay for my kids to go to school. So
1: it is a problem depending on what your circumstances are. Okay, so there's good debt and bad debt. Is that what I hear you saying? There can be yes, good 100%. yeah, there can be good, yeah. But it has you have to see the debt in the context of your own life and how you spend whatever you're spending and I guess if you have if you have make $60,000 a year and you owe 10,000 on your Visa, that may be a form of debt that isn't good for you. And if you owe another 10,000 on your American Express, that's even worse, right? Is that what we're saying? All right. Well You're 100% correct. It starts
2: to add up, and it starts to be impactful. And I meet a lot of people who have questionable income sources, and what that means is that maybe they have jobs that aren't stable, or they have jobs that are seasonal, and they don't earn, or they're not sure whether their job is stable to begin with because they're in a particular area or field that that is inherently unstable. So for somebody who has let's say, a union job or a job where they really can't be fired, they have a situation where they have a finite amount of income that comes in, and that's definitive. But other people who don't, then they're in a situation where their good debt can easily become bad debt. So While it starts out as good debt and the intentions are good, you know, nobody takes out debt with the intention of not paying it. So it starts out as good debt because it gets you something. It gets you a car that you can go to work and drive your family around. It gets you a home to live in. It gets you an education. It gets a lot of things debt. And that's all good. The problem comes in is that when it's not looked at on an individual basis where that, where you're looking at your totality of your circumstances, including your income, your household situation, your age, your goals, when you don't look at that carefully and you just haphazardly take on debt that you think
1: is going to help you, it can easily turn into bad debt, and that's where the problems come in. So what happens when you take out a mortgage for instance that is too big something you can't handle you rationalize that you will be able to you're going to get a promotion for your job your spouse is, or your partner is going to get a new job and make more money but that doesn't pan out what you, i mean in that particular situation what would you do you know you bought this house you have a mortgage it's not it's way beyond what you should have paid for how do you ha- handle that how do you get yourself out of that kind of debt well, that's
2: a very common problem. Years ago we used to advise people in the when we were doing real estate closings that you always bite off a little more than you can chew and grow into the house. That is no longer the case. But it's still a common place where people have bitten off more than they can chew because they did anticipate, like you said, increased income, but life has its way of throwing you different curveballs. Perhaps you ended up with uh, you know, children, or perhaps you ended up one of your the two spouses um, lost their job or had a substantial reduction in income, and all of a sudden, this becomes a problem. The solution really is to take a look at what's going on, again, globally. Take a look at your income and all of your expenses. Spend 30 days going over every single penny you spend from toilet paper to stamps. Write it all down, you and your spouse, your partner, whomever is living in your household and part of the contribution to income and also part of the expense. Write it all down. Be aware of it. Place it into categories. You know, is this a need? Is it a want? Is there a way for me to reduce that? Because ideally, you want to try to get your mortgage payments to about a third. Uh, but what I see and where the problems come in is that mortgage payments are about 50% of household income. And when it's 50% of household income, I know that those people cannot afford their lifestyle because there is not enough money to pay for the other expenses that go along with home ownership. And one of the things that I do advise people to do is to become a renter because if you have no equity in your home, you're a renter anyway to the bank, and you then have to maintain that house. And if you've owned a home, you know how difficult and expensive it is to maintain a home. So reduce your expenses. You always have the option of buying a home again in the future. There's nothing that says that you can't buy another home, but when you have a situation that becomes problematic in paying your mortgage, it is time to look at getting out of that or reducing expenses so the payments become more affordable. But a lot of people become very emotionally attached to their homes, and they become emotionally attached, believe it or not, to their credit cards. And it becomes very difficult to counsel the people who become emotionally attached to detach from it. It
1: is a process. It is a procedure, but it's also a business decision. So, yeah, when well you make talk sense about it for your going family? To really to do considering that. debt therapy? Go to a debt counselor, or you, an attorney, uh, a therapist, you know, even a social worker. Uh, so, there. I, I really, I had actually never heard of debt therapy, which is interesting. But can you do this? Beforehand, now we're kind of talking about after the fact because what about before the fact? I mean, if we, someone went to you and talked to you about what they intended to do in terms of buying a house or, or getting debt that may be good debt, I mean, do you, you, could, would you have a list of things that they need to consider, uh, before they actually purchase the house or purchase something else, a big ticket item like a car or whatever it is? Uh, but do it before rather than after the fact, after they gotten serious debt, bad debt? Well, the preventative measure is really easy. It's called budgeting. And, yes, there there
2: isn't so much of a debt therapist really out there. It's not that somebody specializes in the area of helping people emotionally deal with debt. But what ends up happening with debt, it's a little bit of a slippery slope. People uh, get, you, you know, it becomes a problem where they don't want to talk about it, like we said in the beginning, but also something that they don't necessarily seek out preventative medicine for, but they come after it's happened. One of the preventative pieces really is, yes, you can seek out help from a trusted advisor like an accountant or an attorney or somebody like myself or a therapist even to help somebody help you make clear and good decisions, but the best way to prevent any problems is to really make a budget.
1: Nobody seems to want to make a budget. It's a whole attitude, I guess. You know, it's not necessarily, even if they know that they should do that somehow, they make excuses for not making up a budget because they they really have an idea that if they did that, maybe they wouldn't purchase the house or the car or take that vacation. So I think people tend to like... they they go into denial really i think that's the whole issue they just really don't we have to break through that denial somehow and say you have to face it it's really easy to push it aside i think and say well things are going to get better and well we you know we are going to make more money or there's going to be more income coming in when there really isn't so isn't it it's it's a real emotional thing that i guess we have to work on i mean you talk about that in the book
2: well that's true
1: debt it's
2: an emotional situation. It's very stressful. It keeps people up at night. It causes arguments between spouses and partners. It causes people to do things that they wouldn't normally do, like hide bills or buy things that they don't really, can't really afford because they say, what's the difference at this point? But I'll tell you the truth. the Budgeting is really like a dirty word. You say budget to somebody, and they cringe. They put their head down. There's obvious signs that it's not palatable. It's not something that they really want to do. And let's face it, when you have a limited income, do you really want the reality check that you can't afford something when you want that item? But if you want to be proactive and getting yourself and your family to a good, stable financial situation, budgeting is a must. And it can be very simple and easy. It doesn't require any math skills other than having a pencil or a piece of paper and a calculator. And there are so many programs out there that can help you and assist you. And all you need to do is take what I said earlier, which is the information from your 30 days, and you plug it right in, and it it calculates it for you. And it tells you where you're at, and you can make adjustments. It's so easy, and it should become a part of your life. In the beginning, nobody likes to do it. It's not comfortable. But after a while, it's something you can learn to do in your head just by looking at the cost because now you know what your income expenses are
1: and you know what you can and cannot afford what do you do with couples who have a totally different approach or attitudes toward debt because i think that's fairly common you know you talk about financial honesty and responsibility and you you know financial honesty is really important when you're in a relationship and you're living with someone Uh, partner or, or a spouse and say they, each one of you has a very different approach to spending money, to getting in debt. How do you deal with that? Because then you have two people, uh, who have to kind of take a look at the way they spend money and, but now they're involved in another relationship. So what do you do? How do you handle that? Well, I call those bird and fish issues. And the reason why is because one partner
2: is a spender and one's a saver and to get them on the same page isn't always the easiest thing to do. The reality is that we have to find some common ground amongst the partner or the couple because if you don't, then each is going to operate independently and it's going to create a situation of distrust and dishonesty at some point, and it's not going to create the cohesiveness that you really want in a relationship. So it's, it's, it's not an easy thing to do, and it's always, when I see couples, it's always one that says, well, he or she is the spender. So I say, well, okay, if that spouse is the spender, then why don't you go do the food shopping or you go into Target or someplace else uh, so that with a list, and you'll come out with the items on the list. If you think that your spouse is going to, or partner is going to go in there and not – spend appropriately, then let's allocate different roles and let's do what makes sense. Or if you are better with writing the bills and the checks, you pay the bills and checks, but that doesn't mean that the other partner is not involved. Everybody should be involved in the same decision-making. Everybody should be aware of the bills and what's paid out and when, And if you keep your lines of communication open and say, I'm not really comfortable with spending that much money and I don't really feel we need it, let's talk about something that we do need and we do need to um, save for. And that's something that makes a lot of sense to help couples really respect each other's positions and be able to trust each other and work together.
1: Yeah, it's really critical what you're saying because I think one of the biggest reasons people get divorced, and I think it may be number one, is money. Uh, oh, no
2: doubt. Yeah. And no so, doubt money becomes
1: a real factor. We do a
2: lot of work with matrimonial attorneys when we're dealing with marital debt and um, and the issues. And when we sit with these individuals now and they talk about the money and the lack of money, it, it definitely causes – Um, bigger issues in relationships. And it doesn't really have to. It doesn't have to be a factor that's something that you fight over. It could be something that brings the two of you closer together, but you have to be on the same page, and you have to be willing to work with each other and see the differences amongst each other
1: and and find a way to respect that. What's the worst-case scenario that you've seen that you've had to deal with in your practice as an attorney? I mean, in terms of couples. In terms of couples, yeah. In terms of couples, a couple because in terms oh, of couples. Oh, I, uh, I had a
2: couple. Um, they're just finishing up. They w- they've been with me a few years. Um, you know, he she was very angry at him. Um, he had taken out credit cards in her name uh she was going on ski vacations with friends and just spending up a storm she didn 't even realize what was happening and um when it all came to fruition, she couldn 't even sit in the same room with him they 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 did not get divorced, but she um was really angry, really hurt, and he didn 't want to share any information and he and he was just like, well, you know it is what it is." Uh, you know they they worked and we were able to get rid of the debt and the debt was far over a hundred thousand probably around one hundred and thirty thousand dollars in combined unsecured credit card debt. But um, the damage was really done because, like she said, how could I trust him? And um, you know unless a couple is really wor- willing to work together to try to heal that, um, it is definitely a recipe for um, uh, and and for
1: divorce. Yeah, that is a recipe for divorce. In that case, I'm not sure that I could handle that. That's uh, that's a tough one. But uh, so financial honesty really, it's, it generalizes to honesty in the relationship and trust with your partner. So you really do have also, to work it out. You're 100% and, right, but also asking the right questions. Because... It's not anybody's fault, and you know, after doing this almost 20
2: years, I'm completely non-judgmental because I hear these stories all the time, and I and I don't blame one person or the other. But the reality is, no matter who you are in a relationship, if your spouse or partner is paying the bills and the bills come in the mail, well, they don't come; they come through the computer. Your obligation to yourself is to say to your partner, "I'd like to sit down. I just want to go over where we're at." I want to to know where the money, you know, what's really coming in, what's going out, where we're spending our money, and, you know, what bills are paid each month. Because let's face it, not only should you be in the know, but if something was to happen to your partner, then and you have to take over. I see people come to me and they have no clue. And in this situation, had this woman come to me or this, this woman come to me and he passed away or became disabled and was unable, she would have had no idea where to even begin. And she could have and should have over the years said to him, it's important for me that we sit down and discuss it. Now, in this situation, he's a bit dismissive, and that happens in relationships where one partner will say, no, no, no. But it's something to be insistent about. It's something to say, it's important to me, please hear
1: me, and uh, I really want to know. So it's really irresponsible. I guess the word is irresponsible. You really have to put that in people's heads. If you are... In a partnership with somebody, then it's 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 irresponsible not to be informed about what your financial situation is. Both of you have to know that. I think women and tend not. I think women tend probably to be more um, be the guilt. I, I, I don't know. They're, they seem to be the ones who allow men to take over. Still, even in this mm-hmm. generation, which is I mean yes, I know things true. have changed, but I think there's something to that. They tend to let their husbands take over the financial stuff. Mm-hmm. I still see that. I
2: see it in the younger generation, too. I mean, it's not as prevalent as it is in the older generation where I get um, widows that come to me and say, my husband always took care of the money. I really have no idea. That's that's much more a different generation, but it still goes on. I still have people who say, well, I got married, so my husband takes care of everything now, or my husband's the income earner. I'm home with the kids, so I'm not really paying attention to it, or he takes care of everything That is not a – I wouldn't necessarily call it irresponsible because, again, I don't like to place blame or be judgmental, but it is your part of the partnership for you to be in the know because anything can happen and you want to you want to know what's going on. Now, sometimes some people just don't want to know because they find it overwhelming or they don't have the head for it. The truth is it can really be broken down into very simple terms. Who's your mortgage company? Who's the bank that you bank with? Do you use a debit card or credit card? Do you know what the limits are on your cards? Do you know when the bills come in each month? Do you know how the bills are paid each month? Do you know what you're paying in taxes every time your money, you know, every time you get paid? And do you know whether you're going to owe money at the end of the year or whether you're going to get a refund? These are things that you
1: could know. And should be should be aware of. I mean, yeah, and I think what it, what it does is, and particularly maybe for women that I'm talking about, even women who are professionals in business, doctors, lawyers, uh, find themselves in that position. They let their husbands or partners take over. That um, just having, I think you said something. Just having the information, you may not necessarily actually be the one to do it to say, uh, you know, to pay the bills each month, but be aware that empowers you, I think, and that keeps you close to to really. Um, understanding what's going on in terms of finances in your household. Just have the knowledge. You don't necessarily even have to be doing the hands-on paying the correct. bills. Would you say that's true? i say it's 100% correct. Just be in the know. Be a part of the partnership. It is,
2: too. And you know what? Believe it or not, there's a lot of pressure on your spouse to pay the bills. And that spouse feels a lot of guilt at times when there's not enough money, and that spouse feels Uh, They tell me they feel badly, but that's really guilt. And there's a lot of stress on the spouse who's paying the bills, and they want to protect the other the other partner from what's really happening. But that's a slippery slope because even though their your intentions or their intentions are good, the reality is, you know, it's a partnership. Work together. It can really bring you closer, and it can take a little bit of the burden off. And there is a burden on the bill payer. It's
1: it's tough to see those bills, you know, week after week, month after month. Yeah, and the other thing is, I think, you know, when things, unfortunately, people do get divorced or get into legal troubles, couples then realize both of you are responsible, whether or not you've taken, I, I still use the word irresponsible, because I think that, uh, that you are both responsible. It's, it's a, you know, you're married or you have a partnership. You're legally responsible for the finances. So, you know, if the law comes into it, then suddenly you realize, hey, I am responsible for that Visa card or the Amex card. Uh, even if, uh, because the card is in both our names. Even if I had no idea that my spouse was, uh, you know, spending a lot of money, I'm still responsible for that. And I think people, and, and in my experience as a social worker, I'll see couples and, I didn't, well, you know, he's the one who spent the money, or she spent the money, but both of your names on the card, you're both responsible for the debt. Right. Well, what
2: happens is, I get that too, why should I pay it when he spent the money, or well, she spent the money, either way. I said, well, if you both are are, are joint you know, co-signers on the account, not an authorized user. A co-signer, you're both legally responsible. An authorized user is not responsible in the same way, but it doesn't matter. It's still marital debt. It's still, if you're co-signers, and that brings to, to another point, knowing what each other's credit is, and combining everything doesn't always make sense. Sometimes I see couples, and I say to them, you guys should be keeping everything separate. All your credit cards should be separate, because maybe one person has a stable situation and the other one doesn't, or one person's credit is substantially better than another's. So combining it isn't necessarily the best thing to do, but that's where the two of you have to sit down and talk to each other and say... What makes sense for us as a family? What makes sense for us individually? And what, what can we do to, to reach
1: our goals financially? Well, you know, Leslie, we only have a couple of minutes left, but you mentioned the word family. And I think maybe this, you know, we sort of can tie up the interview this way because I think bringing in the family, even bringing in the kids to, when it's appropriate so that when they will have the experience of, of being part of the making, maybe Certain financial choices or decisions will help them once they are older, have their own households or get married or have their own uh, uh, relationships. So shouldn't you bring them in at a point that's appropriate for each child um, so that they'll have... Well, I agree with you. There are...
2: I mean, I have seen people who want to bring their young children into meetings with me, and I say to them, honestly, this is not appropriate for, for your child to be sitting here listening to this. Um, sometimes I, I see them with older kids who come in. I see, you know, 40-year-olds come in with uh, 70-year-olds, you know, for for – problems with these, either the 70-year-old has or the 40-year-old has. So having open and discussions with the kids and as part of the family is important. I mean, I have three teenage kids, and I talk to them openly about what it's going to cost to go to college. And, you know, each week somebody wants new sneakers or something for soccer. And we talk about, well, we spent with this, so now we have to be careful and let's wait a few weeks before we buy something else. And, you know, if you want this, you have to pay for it yourself those are important discussions to have at every single age from very young when, you're, when you get them a piggy bank to birthday, dealing with birthday money and teaching them to, to budget. And when you say to them, listen, if you want that video game and it costs $60 and, you know, you earn $10 a week in allowance, how many weeks is it going to take you to save for that? And do you want to use all of your money for that? Those are ways to teach the kids, and it's, and it's so important. And seeing the parents – act financially responsible, will definitely, definitely impact the kids
1: positively as they get older. Well, great advice. Uh, great advice in your book. We can go to lifeanddebtbook.com for more information. You can buy the book online at bookstores everywhere. And we've been talking to Leslie Tain. Uh She's an attorney, a debt therapist, and author of Life and Debt, A Fresh Approach to Achieving Financial Wellness. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning, Leslie. Great having you.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time.
1: Yeah, we're going to take a short break uh, break right now. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute.
3: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show, Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Do you feel like you are alone in a desert? Often we feel alone with no place to turn for help and guidance in our troubles that always seem to be so overwhelming. Stop. Take an hour each week to tune in to Stream in the Desert with Dr. Rita Huang. Dr. Rita will share stories of people just like you, intended for you to find some inspiration in their problems and solutions. The most important thing is that you are not alone. Others have been in the same place. Share some time with us every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific, and on demand on the Voice America Variety Channel.
0: The world we live in has become a crazy place. Poverty is at an all-time high in the wealthiest nation on earth. We keep calling on government to save us with new programs. And now, we have more people using food stamps than any time in our history. This problem continues to get worse. The answer to poverty is in our homes, churches, and communities, and through our children. Get the answers from The Mickey Ellison Show, Wednesdays at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern, On Voice America Variety.
3: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: You're listening to The Catherine Zock Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788.
1: We're back. I'm Catherine Zock, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is Dr. Jessica Nudik zitter We're going to be talking about her New York Times article when doing everything is way too much in her recent New York Times blog post critical and palliative care physician Dr. Jessica Nurek-Zitter paints a vivid and honest picture of drastic end-of-life measures Dr. Zitter introduces the readers to Vincent, a patient whom she treated ten years ago who still influences her work today uh, Dr. Zitter explains how cookie-cutter advanced medical directives like the one Vincent signed do not accurately portray what the final days of life may look like when and when any and when any and every possible medical procedure is performed. Dr. Zitter attended Stanford University, Case Western Reserve University Medical School, and has a master's degree in public health at the University of California. She is co-founder of Vital Decisions, which provides telephone-based counseling for patients with life-limiting illness. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, doctor. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, well, I did read your blog, and I said, well, we've got to have doctors that are on the show because this is a hot topic. Finally, I think we're beginning to address this, this end-of-life measures, uh, this cookie-cutter way of dying. And uh, there are several physicians like yourself who are in the forefront of doing this. So let's talk about that. How do we get to this point, first of all, uh, about why we, at the end we tend to want to do everything Possible to prolong life even when the consequences of that will be, are somewhat horrific as in your experience with this particular patient, Vincent.
4: Yeah, I think part of the problem, honestly, is that, um, people have no idea what it really looks like in there, uh, in that frontier of, you know, lim- stretching life and death out to its limits. And I think if people really did have a sense of what that looked like, uh, they may, choose much earlier to opt out of that because it just it's really beyond description and it's it's uh, almost the stuff of science fiction movies
1: so we don't really have the truth we don't know what end of life means in our lay person's head we think that medicine is going to come up with some a cure for cancer that perhaps if we are an end stage you know cancer uh that we so we should prolong our lives just in case there might be something but we don't really understand what that means. So let's talk about that because lawyers mm-hmm. will tell us, well you need a directive, you need a medical directive, you need a an, an end of life uh what do you a healthcare proxy, all of those kinds of things and that will protect you in the end so that you will get the kind of care that you want. But like what you're mm-hmm. saying, we don't really know the kind of care uh, what we think we want is really not what we're gonna get.
4: Right. Well I think that the the really important piece to take away from all of those uh ministrations of, of, of lawyers and, and people who are talking about how to prepare for this is that it really is about thinking about it in a realistic way and getting as much information um as upstream in your illness or even when you're still healthy as you can because I'll tell you as an ICU doctor, there's no form, there may be one or two and I can talk about them in a second, but there's no real form that is going to protect you, uh, from the type of bad death that Vincent had as much as having really thought through realistically a lot of these decisions and talked about it with your loved ones. Because in the end, when you come into the intensive care unit, it's a, it's a, it's a, an environment filled with chaos and pressure and anxiety and not only for the patients and the families, but the physicians are under a lot of stress to keep bodies alive because that's what we are trained to do. And things happen very, very quickly. And so even as I say, the best laid plan, somebody with you know, very, very good sense, I do not want to linger. And I've heard this many, many times. So my father said he did not want to linger. But by that point, he's already on a breathing machine in our intensive care unit. And it's very, very difficult to unravel all of the things that have gotten him to that point and very painful for everybody, especially if it was clear that this patient did not want this in the first place. So my, my point about that is advanced directives and healthcare proxies are very, very important things to be talking about and thinking about. But in the end, it's really about um, having full fledged uh, fleshed out conversations with your loved ones so that when. God forbid, people end up in the intensive care unit and a family is sitting and talking to the doctor, there is a really three-dimensional
1: picture of what they would want. Let's talk about that conversation because I you know, I, I read, I mean, well, maybe we should start with talking about Vincent because that's, that's what the your, the, near, the blog was about and that patient, so we can kind of put a face on it. What happened with Vincent? This is a patient that you treated, what, 10 years ago? Actually, had, 11
4: years ago um, In when I was a
1: Reasonably new, uh,
4: attending a, at a hospital in New Jersey and it was a patient who, by the time I came in on the case, he had been really just kept alive on machines for many, many months, probably a couple of years. He had not, he'd been demented for years before that and hadn't really been, um, uh, living a life that that many of us would want to live. He'd been in, in, in a nursing home that whole time. He didn't have any family, and he was uh, very um, um, unaware. But he but he had kind of gone on, and he had had this advanced directive, which I describe in the piece as having been very, very clear to all of my doctors, anywhere in the future, I want you to keep me alive as long as possible. And so we had gone on to honor those wishes uh, and had really kept him alive. And by the time I met him, he was so his body had broken down so much um, that he really was lying in in this bed with um uh, broken down skin and muscle, and you could see really into his, you know into his bone structure, which is not the way most of us imagine ourselves ever being, and the pain that that existed in his body every time he'd have a dressing change was 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 apparent in in his eyes and it was very painful to watch and so we had this advanced directive that he had written about ten years earlier um when he had been uh, compass mentis with a, with a social worker in the nursing home that he lived in and now the question was really was that still applicable i mean we had no indication that it wasn't but it was that every man assumption that nobody would want to live this way with no chance of ever ever coming off of a breathing machine with your body broken down to the point that you were in so much pain um, and the question was, I, I didn't feel that I had the ability to answer that uh, ethically, and I needed to pull some other people in to uh, look at the case and and decide whether or not we should continue going forward in the uh, vein that we had been going forward with with maximum life support. And so I I called his um, uh, he had you know he was a guardian uh, of the court because he was what we call um, an unbefriended elder, at least in those days that was the term. And the guardian was a a lawyer, and she came in, and I said, you know, you really need to come in and see him, because you can't really imagine this unless you're actually seeing him. And so she came in, and I describe in the piece how she walked in, and I gave her a yellow gown, and she walked in with me, and she gasped. And um, the case went into the courts at that point, and I went off service, so I honestly didn't know what ended up happening until yesterday, when I got a letter from that lawyer who read my piece in the New York Times and said, I, I realized that this was the piece, that, that, that I, the case that I had been involved in, and I was really moved by this case, as obviously were you, Dr. Zitter, and I'll never forget it either, and she said, what happened was that we did bring this, even though it's such a long shot, to um, a, a, a judge in the Essex County Court in 2004, and um, they did rule in favor of continuing life support because of the advance directive and the uh, that we had from from um, from this patient that said do everything. And so I, you know, as I say in my piece, I, I don't know what the right thing was, and and because the court ruled that way, then I think that probably was the right thing to do. Um,
1: I do think that I wish that.
2: Can I interrupt you
1: because I, as a physician, and you're, how can you reconcile, because as you're describing the situation and bringing the lawyer in and the horrific, he has, his skin is is deteriorated down to the bone, it almost sounds like you're, as physicians, you're torturing the person, torturing the patient. Uh, So. Yeah, I
4: mean, I, I would put it this way. I would put it that, you know, death is Torturing this patient. This patient's body is trying to die. It's doing everything it can to die. It is dying, and we're continuing to keep it alive. And I, I, I felt. I mean, I have to admit, I felt complicit in in hurting this man. And that's why I called for reinforcements. Um, I don't know what you know. I don't know what the right thing. I know I wouldn't want to have been him. I don't know many people who ever would want to be in that condition. And I suspect he wouldn't have. But I don't think we could have known. And every well-meaning person, including this judge, really felt, look, you know, this is the last thing we had written by him, so we might as well follow it. But, you know, I think people just need to be more informed about what this really looks like. Um, I'm writing a piece right now, I'll tell you, that specifically deals with this and proposes a little bit of a radical uh, proposal that we should, before people can get health insurance, they should be required to actually see videos of what life... Um, and death in the ICU look like, because I don't, I don't mean for that to sound like a, like some kind of a, a, a grim and mean thing to do. I actually think it would be a benefit to people. I think it would spare people from these types of experiences, which are all too common.
1: Dr. Zitter, I had a physician on the show a couple of weeks ago uh, who is doing just that. Dr. Valendez, a yes. Mass General? That's right. Dr. Valendez, I think he's doing some great work. So uh, what you're saying is most physicians should be on the, if you want to call it bandwagon, but should be doing that. That should be that that should be something that should be uh, required. I I agree with you. So let's talk about that because I think I mean that's the issue, having the conversation with your patient families, having the conversation about end of life stuff. Nobody wants to have the conversation though. You know, and uh, actually I had interviewed Dr. Verlandes, and after that I was talking. I have three boys in their 30s, and I said we should be having this kind of a conversation. And so we're, we're on the beach in Miami, and, one of the, and so my middle son said, well, let's have it. And my first response, <laughs> I don't want to have the conversation now. I'm having a good time. <laughs> this isn't the time. So when is the time, he said. And I couldn't really think of a time, and we still haven't had the conversation. So you know, that's, it's interesting. It's a good question. I think here's how I think you should do it. And, and I actually
4: got this idea from a friend of mine who called me up about a week and a half ago. She had come to a death cafe that I had done. I don't know if you've been hearing about these death cafes that are sort of sweeping the nation. People are doing. Um, they're people get together and they there's actually a packet that you can download online. I think you could look up death cafe dot um, com or something like that. Just go Google search it and you can create a um, you can have a call together a bunch of your friends, family, and sit down with these these forms and. Suggestions about how to have the conversation, suggestions about how to, what forms to fill out and how to go about it. And I think it's an extremely helpful uh, way to get started. Uh, there's another thing called the Conversation Project by uh, Ellen Goodman. is a uh, reporter, news uh, journalist. NPR? I, I guess. I'm sorry? Uh, she's on NPR? Uh, no, she's, she's in Boston. I think she writes for the Boston Globe and a few. Oh, okay. and, and she has put together the Conversation Project, which you really should also look up. And it's a terrific way for families to start the conversation. So you do, you need to set aside time with your family. You need to sit down at the dinner table or maybe on the beach in Miami, but you need to come at it with some kind of script and support. And you can't know what that is yourself. So you need to go to these sources, go to the conversation project, go to, um, uh the deaf cafe site and see if those can help you generate the conversation and start and start somewhere. Because once it starts, it's easier to continue it. It's that first how do we start this that's really difficult.
1: Yeah, well you just added another piece to it, which I think is so important and as a social worker I see you know in other areas, um we use it all the time, but group support. So it's not just you and your isolated family having the conversation. See I think that the conversation project, as you say, deaf cafe you have all these other people, they're in it with you, and it kind of it really does open up the topic. I think it makes it a lot easier to talk about. Uh, the, um, it's, D, it's Death Cafe, right, C-A-F-E? Yep, C-A-F yeah. as
4: in Frank E. Absolutely. I'll tell you, I think another thing besides these sites and these strategies is it is just becoming more of a part of the, the conversation. I had this week two um, daughters of Friends of mine who are doing projects in high school, um, and they're both, they both asked me if they could interview me about issues around end of life. Now, if you've got two high school students coming to you from two different schools <clears throat> interested in learning about end of life stuff, this is starting to percolate through the general culture, and I think that's a very uh, positive sign.
1: It's, it's, yes, it absolutely is a positive sign and it's, it's, as you say, it's starting to percolate probably because first of all, I guess, and unfortunately I've had experience with this with friends and relatives whose lives have been prolonged just because they can and not because they have any quality of life. I've even mentioned this on the show, uh, before, but a friend who died of, of ovarian cancer and it seemed to me she was really just tortured the last nine months that she was alive and filled with all this kind of false hope um, yeah. and it, it to me it was just it's something that's obviously that I think about all the time because she was a very close friend, but it 's happening more and more, I guess I mean we only have a few minutes left, but because we didn 't really get to this, so when you 're talking about end of life and people saying they want to do everything you possibly can what does that really mean? Can you just kind of tell us, like, you know, they talk about putting in a feeding tube so you figure, okay, so I have a feeding tube, I'm just getting fed in a different way, or I get CPR, I get all of these end of life treatments, but it's not, uh, that in itself can be torturous. And, and I think, right. yeah, yeah, well, that's a
4: great point. I mean, the, the whole point is that people think that all of the things that a doctor might offer are magic bullets. There's something often, There's something to be gotten from them. And I will tell you that the data is starting to show us more and more clearly that a lot of the things that we doctors do automatically, like put in a feeding tube when someone stops taking food by mouth, or like putting someone on chemotherapy for their seventh round when they haven't responded to previous rounds of chemotherapy. We know, and this is definitive and without any question, that we shorten life that way. Not only do we shorten life, but we actually cause suffering and decrease the quality of life. So we know that, for example, patients with dementia. Um, who have stopped eating uh and for whom feeding tubes are inserted all the time, they actually are more likely to aspirate uh with a stomach full of food that was instilled by uh by a food, uh, by a feeding tube, they're more likely to aspirate and develop a pneumonia and die. And they actually than than somebody who with dementia who continues to be hand fed small amounts. Uh, similarly, we know that patients and this was from a huge study, and there have been many that have followed since Since uh, the 2007 study on tens of thousands of Medicare patients looking at a, uh, a, a database and doing analysis, that patients who chose to do a hospice approach to uh, care and said, I'm not going to be doing any more chemotherapy, but I'm going to be really working aggressively with the palliative care teams to, to maximize my quality of life and minimize my symptoms. Those patients, and get ready for this because this is shocking and people think, oh, hospice means you're going to die soon. Those patients lived on average 30 days longer than patients with similar stages of disease who continued the sort of course of continued uh, chemotherapy and regular care. So, So, Dr.
1: Zitter, why don't we know this? Physicians know it. You know it. Healthcare workers know. Yeah. Why doesn't the lay public? Why don't
4: we know it? Well, first of all, a lot of physicians don't know it. More and more are. But what's fascinating is the data that's starting to come out about how physicians die differently from their patients. And this is really important. So, again, take note. Doctors and their families do not die the way their patients do. We die with less uh, use of uh, uh, heroics at the end of life. We're much more likely to be in hospice. We're much more likely to die for longer periods of time in hospice and to have benefited from the maximizing of quality of life that hospice provides, um, we we die better. And that's a very important thing to note. So what, what's, why is it that this communication transfer is not happening to our patients? Um, and that's, very,
1: that's a very worrisome trend. All right, so doctors die better because they're informed, right? Exactly. They, 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 they know, they understand all of what end of life, and I'm putting quotes, care, uh, cookie-cutter care, uh, what, what that entails. So, what about medical schools? Isn't this something that you have to start, at least in medical schools, with the, with, with medical students so that they're going to yeah. ha- be able to have the conversation with their patients? Absolutely. Um, Absolutely. And we, it's starting to, you know, when
4: I was in medical school, we spent almost no time. In fact, I probably, probably no time on having, helping to figure out how to help people die. It was all about curing disease. And, um, as uh, as times have changed things are things you know palliative care has only been in existence since 2008 so you know modifications to medical school curricula uh is slow in coming and it's starting and there's now metrics to see how much how much have medical students really been exposed to end of life um, uh treatment uh, management issues and, and that 's considered a good metric if it's if it 's a higher amount. how much time do residents in, in residency training programs, how much time do they spend how many how many um, how many conversations end of life conversations and breaking bad news uh, conversations have they witnessed? <clears throat> Those are all metrics now, so it 's starting to change, but it is very, very long and um, steep road ahead of us and I, I, I know it's it 's changing but it 's going to take us a long time and in the meantime we lay people and, and citizens need to be able to step in and say, you know, I can't wait until the wheels of change in the medical culture are, are successful. I have to start figuring out how to empower myself now to not
1: let this kind of thing happen to me. Yeah. I think another thing uh, when you're talking about the physicians and particularly the, the young so, or the students in medical school, it's an attitude change. Isn't it an attitude change that the doctors or the physicians have to feel that he or she is not – are, they are not failing
3: when you they can. don't
1: do all of these heroic kinds of things at end of life. That's not a failure on their part. Cause yes. Yeah. Yes.
4: That's, I mean, that's exactly, I mean, it, it, there's so
1: many underlying reasons why it has gotten
4: this way that, that would take like another three shows to cover. Yes. <laughs> um, but, but you're right. I mean, we, we have been taught that success as physicians is prolonging life and particularly in my subspecialty of, you know, intensive care, it's all about, saving and, and, and doing heroics, and we don't necessarily value saying, okay, you know what, now we're at a point where this patient is not going to benefit from continued uh, life support and life-sustaining, you know, life-prolonging, so let's focus, let's switch the focus to something else, which is aggressive management of, of their symptoms and, and maximizing their quality of life and trying to make things their day, a better day, as, as Atul Gawande says, and that is not yet seen even if it is academically, in practice, in the intensive care unit, we still can't quite sit with that
1: as a real sign of success. And we're not there yet, so we've got a lot of work to do. Well, I think as patients become more informed, then, and it kind of opens up the conversation that also helps the physician to be in a more comfortable position because now he has informed patients who really do know what this end of life care means so that they're not like, taking like the total responsibility for feeling like I failed the patient. It's, you know, everybody's in it together sort of thing. Absolutely. Um, yeah, which, which is critical. Um, yeah. Yeah. So it's a whole different way of, of, I don't want to bring in the financial, but that has that's also there. I mean, we spend, what, more money at the end of life in the last three months uh, of yeah. our care um, than we do in a lifetime of, of treatment? It's, it's, Absolutely. Yeah. Huge
4: amounts, huge amounts of money. I don't usually even, for me, I, I try to stay away from the money because there's so much else to talk about that makes it such a slam dunk that we're doing this wrong. The money is just you know icing on the cake. <clears throat> but, yes, we, we, we really do spend excuse me, <clears throat> a
1: lot of money on things that not only aren't helping, but are absolutely hurting people, hurting people. And not just the individuals, families. I mean, this impacts families. We're talking about individuals. We're talking about parents and children and absolutely. extended families, and it impacts them in such a negative way. Uh, in, in, as you say, it would take two or three more shows to, to actually talk <laughs> about that. But it, right. uh, we have to say goodbye. Uh, this has been great. And I thank you so much for being on the show this morning. Um, oh, pleasure. So I would like, you to tell our listeners um, where they can hear more about what you're doing, obviously, uh, and what website to go to. Absolutely. Well, please check out my website at jessicazitter.com,
4: um, and also I'm writing a book right now that will be coming out probably in uh, mid 2016 about issues on the ground of how we're dying, how patients are dying in the ICU in, in our in our country, and right. uh, hopefully shed some light.
1: Yeah, great. Well, good work. And when the book comes out, you've got to come back on the show again. Terrific. We're happy great. to. Thank you so much. Uh, palliative care physician Jessica Nuttick-Zitter, MD, when doing everything is way too much. Um, we're going to say goodbye right now. I'm Catherine Zock, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zock Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Have a great week, and We'll see you next Wednesday.